You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Say good morning to our listeners. Good morning. Good Wherever morning. Wherever you are and whatever time it is. Good afternoon. Good evening. Guten Tag and listeners. Are you ready for another exciting episode of It Came From the Center for Auto Safety? That wasn't a great I think show. we are. All right. Well, good. So this week, we're going to start off talking about the right to repair. And some of you may have heard about this before. The simplest example is uh, your cell phone. Hey, know how your cell phone, everything's sealed in there, and you're like, hey, I need to replace the battery, but you can't open it and, and get in there to actually replace a battery. I'm old enough to remember when you could actually replace batteries on cell phones. I can't do that anymore. Um, so the auto industry has said, hey, let's also design and plant obsolescence. I mean, features where as consumers, you can no longer really repair your car. Here's a little, you know, tiny little part, but if you want to get in there to repair it, we're going to void all warranty, all coverage, everything possible. We're going to um, cause you to have uh, gastrointestinal problems. Uh, you're going to get skin conditions. All sorts of horrible things will happen to you because you can't repair things on your own. Uh, and and I know our friend, Mr. Michael Brooks, has a lot of thoughts on this issue. Well, it's, you know, there have been little issues with right to repair over the years. For instance, you know, the, the, some of the being able to access your um, engine oil system to make oil changes and, and that type of thing. I've definitely heard complaints from people over the years who have seen new designs that seem to make it unreasonably hard to get at those parts and um, do the kind of change, do the kind of maintenance that people do at home. Um but now, you know, that cars are becoming computers on wheels, they've got software embedded in them everywhere. And what that software is allowing manufacturers to do is essentially shut off access to certain vehicle systems that they don't want anybody else to touch. And you know, there's been a years long battle disagreement. I'm not sure how to describe it, between the independent repair shops in America and automakers around some of these um the newer vehicles with software on them that the independent repair shops don't have the ability to repair because the manufacturers aren't sharing that information with them and you know lots of other reasons but from a consumer standpoint even even ignoring the um independent repair shop issue you know kind of like with the iPhone, kind of like what we see with farmers where they're not allowed to repair their tractors and are forced to wait months or weeks for uh, a repair so they can get back to their work. Um, consumers are having that same problem. You know, the, with software, none of us really know, you know, we've talked about before on here, you can, you can look at a vehicle and inspect it and see a lot of the safety issues that are occurring from a mechanical standpoint, but the software is kind of a black hole to most of us. We're not gonna be able to go in and interpret all the code that's running all the different systems in the car. And um, that virtually eliminates the ability for consumers to perform vehicle repairs they have in the past. Um, and for those that are able to, um, going in and messing with your vehicle software is probably going to void your warranty. So there's some there there are a lot of changes here that consumers are facing in their relationship with their car. 
Um, this is, you know, it's it's probably worth mentioning too here that what automakers are doing right now is basically putting software into every part of your car so that they can ultimately make you subscribe to different features in the vehicle so that they have a continuous money source. So it's in their interest not to um, give out information to independent repair shops or to consumers or to anyone about how to repair their cars and to how to you know, manipulate their vehicles because that's what the manufacturers want to do and they want to do it for a price. So this is an issue that's not going away. Um, Massachusetts passed a law attempting to address it a couple of years back. Um, but at this point, you know, automakers really have the upper hand here because they're designing newfangled complex things every week and month that uh, the rest of the world's trying to keep up with. And, you know, I'm not really sure how this is going to play out. What do you think, Fred? Well, I think that uh, astute readers of our AV Consumer Bill of Rights will notice that we've included a provision in there for disclosure and uh, monitoring of safety critical functions that are not accessible by a visual inspection. This is a close to related issue because there's a lot of stuff buried in your car you need to know about that they're not telling you about. Among them are the, the kinds and types of software that's included in the vehicle. Small, um, probably small compensation for a lot of people, but Maybe it's reassuring to know that the people who build the cars aren't really sure what all that software is doing either. So we're all in this together. Um, but a lot of this, as Michael said, grew out of the agricultural community, which is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on sophisticated equipment from John Deere and other suppliers of agricultural equipment that they can't fix. Farmers are a very pragmatic bunch. They've all got their welding tools. They've got a lot of sophisticated hammers and sickles. And um, they really need this in order to maintain their harvest schedules and their planting schedules. So the vehicles that we drive are actually the kind of the tail end of the dog. This is a systemic problem with all the modern sophisticated equipment. And... Uh, something that really needs to be solved. So when I buy a car today, do I actually own the car? I mean, is this a kind of like with my cell phone where I own maybe the physical device, but I actually don't own anything that runs on it. So I'm yes, applying. that is correct. Yep. You only borrow the software for as long as the uh, owner of the software happens to license it to you. And is it and often as they decide to make updates to it. And we see Google regularly announces a product and then 18 months later cancels it. I mean, will that start happening? Is there any regulations around my car so that, you know, OEM manufacturers? <laughs> <laughs> every time I ask- We love you, them, Anthony. Are there any regulations? They just look at me and laugh. Oh, subscribe for the premium edition of this and you can, I'll send you pictures of the two of them laughing at me all the time. Uh, but seriously, this is a, a legit question because Google is notorious for this where say, hey, here's a new feature. You subscribe to it. And then 18 months later, they're like, hey, yeah, that's gone. You don't have access to your data. Thanks for your money. Have a nice day. With Google running a lot of auto software now and a lot of OEMs turning to Google to run their software, 
what's to stop them from, you know, you're driving down the road and be like, oh, yeah, you wanted air conditioning? Gone. We've decided to no longer support that feature. Or we're no longer doing ADAS. And well, there's nothing to stop them. And as Michael pointed out uh, several episodes ago, they're actually now getting into a subscription programs for features that you wouldn't expect to be part of an optional operation of your vehicle, like seat heaters, right? right. And there, there's nothing to restrict them from attaching a subscription business model to any of the other software features that are in the vehicle. So, so uh, you know, it's a, it's a closely related issue to their control of the software. Okay, so here's my radical idea. Ready? I bought the car. I own the car. And you say, I don't own the software. I own a license to the software. Well, like I own my computer and it came with an operating system, but I can erase that whole thing and put in some open source software on that where I do. I mean, I'm not going to inspect the software, but, you know, there's a whole community of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who, who inspect this and make it better. Is there a situation where or is anybody working on open source auto software so I can be like, hey, I don't want, you know, GM or Tesla's nonsense software. I want to use my own open source. You used, you used a bad example there because GM is the one who a couple of weeks ago came out and said they were supporting open source, open source software protocol that they were, you know, wanted to share within the auto industry. I mean, I think that's a great concept. I think we need to share, they need to share a lot more things in the auto industry because they're so focused on profit that their operations are siloed off and they don't really want to share in the profits. They want it all themselves. It seems like so there's some issues there. I mean, look, it, it, when we say cars are turning to computers on wheels, it's not just because they're getting lo loaded with whiz bangs and gizmos that are based on computers. It's because the entire model is basically being converted to what we see on our computers, where you get Adobe Acrobat Pro for one year and you've got to pay a fee every year. You're, you know, in cars, the seat heaters are a great example because that's a subscription model that exists right now. They're putting, you know, and it's they're ultimately it looks like they're going to be putting a lot of fancy features in vehicles creature comforts convenience features that are going to be based on subscriptions you're just going to have to get used to paying it or going without um that's fine by me i'm happy rolling my window up with a handle and unlocking my door by hand but i don't think it's fine with a lot of people since we're also seeing this week that the average cost of a vehicle is now about fifty thousand dollars um, I don't know how many people are willing to pay that and subscribe to the tune of a couple hundred dollars a year. I mean, it's, it's like an annoying condo fee or something. I, it's, 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 it's an annoy, it's going to annoy consumers significantly to have to pay, um, fees on top of already having a monthly auto payment. So, um, with the example of the seat heaters, so the manufacturer, they designed the car, they have the heating coils and cooling coils inside the See, and yep. so they're just, and I, I bought that again. We've agreed that I've owned this physical object. Um, so can I, why can't I just delete their software and be like, Hey, here, well, I'm turning on seat heaters without paying them $5 a month. Or whatever. I think you're perfectly okay doing that, but you, 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 you lose your warranty. So <laughs> that's a risk. If that's a risk you're willing to take, I mean, you can modify the vehicle however you like after you get it. Um, you surely see a lot of vehicles running around that, that people have done that too. 
Um, Aren't there laws around how much I can modify my vehicle before it violates the warranty? There like, may be. Uh, not really. Um, but particularly in this area of software, like if you're wiping software from the vehicle, we've seen consumer complaints that span the range of things. I mean, some dealers and manufacturers look for ways not to honor warranties. I think we talked about that in our episode with Joanna Johnson on Hyundai and Kia um, oil pan drain plugs falling out. Um, you know, when, when a manufacturer or a dealer even is, is looking into a situation, sees an easy way to avoid a warranty, that means they're going to get paid from that point on. That's something that happens frequently. So, um, you know, I would expect there to be a way in um, the more modern cars for them to tell whether there's been tampering with the software and that type of thing. Well, I also want to point out that quality control of open source software is a continuous and real problem. And when your cousin Lenny sends you a software module that changes the gain on your steering control, for example, saying this will make you really zippy as you're going around corners. Well, that's fine. But has your cousin Lenny done all of the work that's required to make sure through regression testing and other means for validating the software that it's not impacting some other unseen part of the control system that you need to stay alive? Uh, so, you know, open source has a lot of virtues, but it also has a lot of intrinsic problems that you're losing control over key functions and key features of your vehicle if you put that into the operating system of the car. Not a simple solution. Yeah. And then on other issues here, you know, when you ask about ADAS, that's something that if they start, first of all, if there's a minimum standard like there's about to be for automatic emergency braking in vehicles, they're not going to be able to um, put that out as a subscription because it's mandated to be equipped in every vehicle that's built. They're, they're, you can't charge for it after you sell someone the car. Um, I'm, you know, the center and me are, are not going to be very happy at all if we start to see safety features monetized as subscriptions, and, which is basically just inequity on its face. You're you're basically telling Americans that they're going to have to pay to achieve a higher level of safety than the next guy. Um, I, that's not a system I think is going to fly uh, right now, maybe 30 years ago, but I, I just, it's, it's so unfair um, and getting safety features out onto every vehicle in the fleet as soon as possible is, you know, is the really the best way to ensure that we're lowering all these very large fatality numbers we're seeing on the roads right now. Hmm. Well, right to repair. We'll uh, keep you updated as things progress on that. Uh, in other news, Steve Wozniak, he is the uh, technical founder behind Apple. He's the guy that Steve Jobs claimed all of his ideas as his own. Uh, but Steve Wozniak, a very smart man, brilliant engineer, also a huge fan of Tesla back in the day. He's like, oh, my God, I'm getting a Tesla Model S and I'm going to get another one. This is the greatest thing in the world, because like most people, he believed the hype. He believed, oh, this is full self-driving. This will take care of itself. This is unbelievable. We're living in the future. Uh, and now Steve Wozniak says, uh, if you want to get an example of artificial intelligence trying to kill you, buy a tesla yeah so uh now that he's had he's had a couple of teslas he's basically saying yeah it's not he's saying i actually believe those things referring to full self-driving and an autopilot 
and it's not even close to reality. And boy, if you want a study of it, artificial intelligence gone wrong and taking a lot of claims and trying to kill you every chance it can get, go get a Tesla. Well, you know, Elon just said this week that that the Teslas are coming out with end to end AI, whatever the hell that means. It just sounds like another corny PT Barnum esque phrase that he's trying to use to sell these things when we know they're not going to achieve the type of performance that is going to allow them all to be robo taxis across America. I don't think anyone that has a brain believes that anymore. Um, but for whatever reason, Musk and Tesla keep pushing that idea. And the reason is to sell more cars. Um, but it's, you know, it's, there's, uh, Squaz is right. And it, this is an example, you know, I, I, you, in the last week or two or month, you know, ever since that Google engineer resigned, everybody's screaming about the danger of AI. And, you know, to me, we're already surrounded by some things like Tesla's and, you know, you're driving past Cruise and Blue Cruise and Waymo's and all these other vehicles, depending on where you are. AI is around and, you know, it can impact you now. It's not some future thing. It's, it's, it's going on. So yes, um, full self-driving Tesla AI could be trying to kill you. I mean, I think that's a, a fair assessment and one that a lot of people who have been in crashes in these vehicles or motorcyclists who have been hit by autopilot and other things would, would agree with. Um, but, you know, another thing is, you know, AI is not a bad thing. One of this, a lot of the focus recently seems to have been on this, the threats of AI versus, you know, the simple fact that we as humans, if we're going to use AI in quotes, need to figure out which components of AI are good, beneficial to society and can be protected from, from uh, being used by bad actors and which are clearly bad and need to be eliminated. I think that there are, you know, probably a lot of things that fall on that good side. And so this, kind of AI fear hype that's being created is somewhat unjustified. It kind of gives uh, the 5 million different things that could be called AI a bad name. It paints it with a broad brush. And, you know, we'd, we, we'd like to see the news media and other people be a little more um, specific about what they mean when they say AI. And we talked about this in our AI episode, but to just say, you know, AI is going to come kill us or AI is threatening is functionally a meaningless statement to me when I know there are thousands of different types of AI out there doing very different things. You can't you just can't paint them all with that broad brush. It's it's um, you know, it's not helpful to talk about it like that. And I think the, the media and Twitter and all these limited space um, areas where we get our information don't really do a good job of, of you know, filtering out all the information and talking to us about what's really going on. This entire episode is generated by AI. We're nothing but a deep fake. I hope you've subscribed to our deep fake subscription service. No, really subscribe and go to autosafety.org and donate. And now Mr. Fred Perkins. I just wanted to start with AI is actually a misnomer. And, and what we're really talking about is automated correlation between data sets that have been validated by human beings and an input that's provided by another human being. And then there's a mysterious mathematical box in between that says there's a very high probability that this input that you're providing is associated with this vast array of data that some human being has already gone through and parsed and 
adjusted so that it can be part of a consolidated data set. Um, the AI that your Roomba has in it is quite different, as Michael said, from the AI that your car might be using as it's driving down the road. Um, AI is really good at, at sorting information from a vast array of data. It's really poor, and in fact, it doesn't at all anticipate an unknown situation and uh, make a judgment as to the best way to navigate that unknown situation. It's just completely absent from AI implementations. So when you're driving, there's a lot of unknown circumstances you encounter. The analog world is very complex. The digital world that the AI is using and that the simulations are using to test whether or not this AI is okay to drive the car is very limited. There's, you know, jillions of jillions of degrees of freedom that are not included in the simulation. Every simulation is necessarily an abstraction and every simulation uses some form of AI to figure out what's going on. But these are always abstractions. They don't represent the real world. And the question is how close does it come to representing the real world before you can say that it's a, a safe approach to driving? Uh, the answer is that they're not there yet because these vehicles keep killing people and they're very erratic. And uh, I, it would be useful if people would, as Michael said, stop thinking that AI is something and start thinking about AI as a process of managing data sets that some human being has put into into place. Um, so Steve Wozniak, is, is AI trying to kill you? Well, it's not trying to kill you but it's completely indifferent to whether or not you're alive. <laughs> I'm, it's more, I think marketing is trying to kill you. So you're saying AI is like a lot of drivers out there. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Except worse. Yeah, well, because dr drivers essentially are forced to live in an analog world because that's the way we function. Uh, the, the system that's inside the car is trying to operate in a digital world to represent the real world. So let me give you an analogy, okay? There's a fraction called one-third, right? If you divide something into three parts. If you try to represent that digitally with one decimal point, <laughs> endless what's threes. the answer? Endless point three, threes. right? Yeah. If you if you try to represent it with two, you get point three three and and so on and so on. There is a limit, though, to how high that's going to get. No matter how far you carry out the series, it's never going to be 1.4. So what you see is that you're incrementally approaching a limit for a fixed value that you understand intuitively from your analog world, but that the digital world of this numerical series never quite understand, never quite gets to. So that's the, the basic problem with AI. It doesn't have a reference to say, this is the reality. This is what you're approaching. So you never know how far you are from a safe state, which is the analog reality of driving that doesn't kill you using an AI simulation that can only numerically represent parts of that universe as being kind of close enough. Is that geeky enough to be confusing or if I... I think that makes sense. So the, the, an the analog reality is kind of like a mathematical approximation of re of reality. Wow, my right, right. The analog versus the digital is you know the real world versus some poor programmer's attempt to 
you know, make a living and pay for braces for their kids. I, I don't think they're poor programmers working on these things. I think they're compensated quite well. Perhaps too much. In fact, there's a great video we're going to put up of, uh, I think it was a Waymo, where yep. you figure they'd, uh, they, they'd, if they read the AV Bill of Rights, they'd understand these vehicles need to stop to police Good Samaritan commands. Um, well, this Waymo was going straight for a fully charged fire hose, going to go over it, and that's bad, bad, bad news. Uh, it wouldn't stop, so the cop had to stand in front of it and yell, stop. It stopped because it was a human, not because it was a cop. And then he's like, well, I'll just open up a road flare. Must be able to respond to fire and smoke. No, the car is just like, I'm going to I'm going to drive over an open flame. Cars are dumb. That's what I'm trying to say right now. Car. Eh, they're not dumb. They're 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 children. There you go. Artificial intelligence. They're they're children that that need a lot of hand holding. They're toddlers. They're toddlers. they're five thousand pound toddlers. Uh, well, I saw one you know. the other day. Uh, 5,000 pounds with the kinetic energy of a hand grenade. Yeah, I think that this kid was hopped up on some crazy amount of sugar. Uh, anyway, the other, the other thing, inter- uh, excuse me, the other thing interesting about that video is it showed that there were six cops tied up for 20 minutes just trying to manage this, this vehicle, this labor saving vehicle, so that it wouldn't interrupt emergency services trying to put out a fire. So you've got, you know, six cops per vehicle for about a half an hour until the maintenance people showed up who could actually get this this uh, automatic machine out of harm's way right and put the cop out of harm's way yeah so basically hey tax uh payer in san francisco because that's where this happened you're subsidizing the development of a private corporation's vehicle what will you get for it nothing you'll get nothing no you'll uh, get traffic <laughs> yeah, you'll get traffic. You'll get uh, the police taking longer to respond to your desperate need because then said they're going, how come this car doesn't respond to me? Uh, speaking and there of- were probably other things those six cops could have been doing while they were babysitting the the vehicle, perhaps. Jelly donut, custard donut. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, and it's not really. I mean, it's it's. I wouldn't want to be anywhere around that thing when it was in that state, right? You have, those, those cops are brave. They're literally jumping in front of it with a flare while it's inching forward. You have no idea if that thing's going to take off any second. You have, you, you can't see the driver. Like you have zero indication of what's going on inside of that vehicle. Um, which is to me, I, I don't want to be anywhere near it. Right. Well, no, and one of the things we've advocated and you'll find this astute readers or astute listeners in our AV consumer bill of rights is that, there needs to be a way for emergency personnel to affirmatively disable vehicles when they encounter them for law enforcement purposes. This is a great example of how the police should have been able to approach that vehicle, flip a switch, do something, call it on their cell phone, and immobilize the vehicle so it didn't continue to endanger the people around it. This is a, this is a sleeper issue, but it's very, very important. I mean, personally, I was so surprised that it didn't respond to a flare because that can't, that's not some edge case scenario. We've all been on the road at some point where there's flares in the road and you don't think, hey, let me drive over that flare. That's what this well, one wanted to do. Usually behind a flare is a disabled vehicle with people possibly around it. So that's obviously a bad, a bad situation. Right. I'm going to go to my betting limit, which is 25 cents and Uh-oh. suggest that there is not enough 
examples of this situation in the A database for the car to respond appropriately to it. You'd need to have several hundred examples of this exact situation or something very close to it for the vehicle to recognize what's going on and make an appropriate action following that. It's just not there. You're never going to have that kind of database integrity and that database breadth to allow vehicles in the analog world in which we all live to appropriately respond to every critical situation. Why Why do we keep seeing fire hoses? Why? I mean, we've seen this for months now. Right. I mean, you would think if, you know, you would think, you know, Cruz, I believe, had the first problems that we saw with it a few months back. But, you know, why Why aren't they taking cues? Why? You know, this is what machine learning is. This is where that AI comes in. You see a fire hose, don't run over it. How, why is that not getting programmed back into these systems? Well, no two fire hoses laid on the road have the same pattern. Bing, 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 they bing. are all different, right? They're all right. they're all significantly different. Sometimes they put the fire hoses through the windows of cars that are parked illegally in front of buildings. Um, it's really a very difficult thing to have some representation says, "Well, this is the generic fire hose," because you know there's there's just every one of them, every array of fire hoses near a fire is quite different than every other array. So this goes That's back a real to problem. The, the the 2 billion cal database we need you know these vehicles need a representation of every possible fire hose layout that there is in order to right. recognize them so right. it's a hard problem yeah they um I, I remember in the was the 80s early 90s the u.s navy spent a ton of money doing artificial intelligence work on submarines to identify different objects and like at one point it'd be like hey this is a rock and the next point they're like hey that's a bomb and, you know, it's it's incredibly hard because of every different possible angle where they're seeing things. It's like people seeing faces on the moon. Um, you know, it, it things will look different from any different angle. But, hey, enough of uh, submarines. And, and at one point, we'll hear about how Fred invented submarines or disabled the submarine or was chased by a submarine. Hey, did you listen to last week's episode where Fred told us about being chased by a tank? Oh, you should check that out after this episode and after you subscribe. Continuing with Tesla news. So... Tesla, as you know, if you listen to Elon and you believe the book of Elon, uh, they're the safest vehicles on planet Earth, and they're the greatest thing in the world, and if you buy one, you're an amazing person. Well, it turns out some members of the U.S. Congress disagree. Uh, they sent him a letter, I believe it was five senators, uh, that signed this, or maybe six, and they said, hey, we have problems with not only your workplace discrimination issues, um, you know, because you're uh, kind of a racist organization and you're harassing people. Um, but your safety record, that's a scam. Actually, they said, uh, quote, let us be clear, your so-called safety review is a sham. Now, we've pointed this out on many episodes. I mean, sure, you can have a Tesla and we, we learned you can drive off a cliff, uh, fall down 200 feet and the car amazingly is fine. But their cars are not safer than any other vehicle on the road, especially when they have autopilot, full self nonsense engaged. In fact, they're less safe. So when you when you buy a Tesla, you're going to be forced to sign an arbitration agreement that requires you to take up any complaint, legal complaint you might have um, around your car in one of Tesla's kangaroo courts before you can even think of getting justice. Um, 
This is a huge problem. It's something we're really worried about as AVs come on the road. Um, and, you know, you're signing a, a, an agreement when you enter these vehicles, like you do with Uber, you agree to some sort of, um, you know, user agreement that contains provisions in it that basically say, you don't get to go to court if we screw up or if we kill you. You have to go to one of our little special courts that we're paying for that we've set up so that we can basically um, prevent you from getting justice or we can woo you with a low offer so that so that you don't get, you know, you're not made whole um, and we lose less money. And that's a great thing for a company. But it's it's it, it, these provisions can you know prevent access to court. They they interrupt civil justice. It's you know th they're not fair. I, I don't think that any any con any consumer groups out there agree that you're going to get a a better deal in a, an arbitration court than you are from a, a jury of your peers or a judge. Um, arbitrations are you know we've we've seen so many lemon law complainants go through the arbitration process over the year, these private arbitrations, not state arbitrations, private arbitration processes set up by manufacturers and get nowhere um, and waste their time and be forced to do that before they can go to court and get their money back. So it's a way that um, automakers use to delay people, to limit the number of claims they face and to basically make it harder for you to uh, be reimbursed when something happens that's their fault that costs you money um, or even worse, injures or, or kills someone. So <clears throat> that was the, the, the kind of the overriding point of the senator's letter in which they asked for basically very detailed data uh, on all of Tesla's safety complaints. Basically, they asked Tesla for every safety complaint they've received and for a lot of background and data on those complaints. Um, so that's a really good thing. Now, I don't know that Elon is going to lift a finger to answer it, given his track record. I doubt he does. Um, I'd like to see him, you know, subpoenaed to testify in Congress on this issue at some point. Um, and, you know, maybe that'll happen in the next few months if the Department of Justice or someone starts seeing this the way we do, which is as a, a possible criminal case. I just want to correct a slip of the tongue Michael made. He said the center's letter. It's not the center's letter. It is from the U.S. Senate. Excellent correction there. Um, but clearly, members of the U.S. Senate are fans of this podcast like you should be. Have you subscribed? Stop it. All right. Um, also related to my favorite self-driving company, uh, our, my buddy Kyle over at GM Cruise. Uh, GM Cruise, their uh, car hit a guy on a scooter back in 2019, and GM Cruise says, we didn't do that. It was our safety driver who did it. So they're saying it wasn't us. It was somebody else. That guy did it there because they hired the company to. Uh, so GM Cruise, they built the cars. They sent them out. They have the license, but they're like, hey, we don't employ the drivers, man. We hired another company. They are the drivers. So uh, they did it, not our self-driving car. Uh, very strange very maybe the whole thing was deep faked and it never happened i i just think i find it really strange that they're doing this simply from a pr perspective you know that you would think they would want not want this kind of thing to get out you know because it shows that their operations are a, a little messy i mean either here they had a safety driver who wasn't trained and wasn't doing his job and or their car is screwing up it could be both 
um, and, and not recognizing pedestrians on scooters. So there's, you know, there's obviously an, an issue here. I mean, trained safety drivers are super important. We think they should probably be in every one of these vehicles that's on the road now. There's no real, you know, for the reasons we discussed just now, there's an easy way to disable the vehicle and not hit fire hoses if you have a trained safety driver in the vehicle. If you have a trained safety driver, you're not going to hit a bus like you did in San Francisco. You're not going to take, you know, kidnap a passenger and take him to his destination three separate times in one drive. There's a lot of these issues that we're seeing that these cars are causing that would be virtually eliminated by the presence of a trained safety driver. Um, so we are strong advocates for that. We think it's important, you know, if these cars are, if these AVs are going to work someday, and if consumers are going to accept them, um, you're going to have far less incidents with trained safety drivers there to take over if necessary. And it's it's going to, you know, help in the long run when you're talking about cities, states, consumers accepting these vehicles. They're not going to accept traffic jams, fire hoses getting run over, and emergency vehicles being stopped from proceeding because your car is stalled in the middle of the road for no reason. Um, and that's why right now we think that, you know, these vehicles really aren't helping us at all on the roads. They're just adding problems and they're doing it simply to fulfill this, you know, what may not even ever happen, this, this idea that America has this big um, desire or need for driverless passenger vehicles um, carting them around. I want to be clear about how unusual the circumstances were for this particular event. Uh, one of the unusual parts of it was that the scooter had properly stopped at a red light and was waiting for the red light to turn green. And when the scooter's red light turned green, the scooter advanced into the intersection, at which point the self-driving vehicle decided to ignore the red light that it was facing and accelerated into the intersection and hit the anomalously responsible scooter driver. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot going on here. And again, getting back to the correlation versus intelligence, there is no database probably in the AV inventory of scooters actually stopping at red lights and doing what they're supposed to do. So maybe this is the result of, you know, or the cause of the particular collision. But the circumstances were that the, the car was clearly at fault and the scooter was clearly not at fault. And yet, you know, a, a serious injury happened. Well, Kyle says it was the human safety driver, and I believe Kyle always. I'm glad you two guys have made up. <laughs> ah, speaking of Fred, let's discuss the Fred light. Uh, so the Canadian city of Brossard, located right across from the St. Lawrence River and from Montreal, has installed a new traffic light in a school zone that only turns green for safe drivers. I love this idea. So this light stays red unless you go below the speed limit. If you go below the speed limit, green light. And it is called the Fred light. It is named after Fred Perkins. It is so crazy that they did this. They're going to call it the Perkins light. They decided that's too long. No, it is the... Uh, I didn't take French. It's yeah, the it's the, 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 the ralentissement educatif. 
I'm going to guess Michael didn't take French either, but uh, <laughs> that was, that was, you know, pretty. I, I did one year in high school, but it did not stick. No. Um, well, this is, a, this is a great idea. And they've there's a place, I think, in the U.S. too, where they're doing this. So they've talked about doing this, which uh, this is. Does this go back to kind of our 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 early conversation around the uh, the infrastructure talking to vehicles? Was that VXF? Is that right? No VXF. No, I mean, well, it's yeah. it's really just the the infrastructure monitoring uh, vehicle speeds. Uh, I mean, essentially, it's the equivalent of a speed camera that's attached to a red light. And I think it's a great idea for particularly for things like school zones where you want to make sure people are going a certain speed. Um, I, I, look, this is the kind of technology that could be used, you know, in cities and in urban areas to slow people down when they're going too fast. You know, if you're going the speed limit, you have a line of green lights five miles long. But if you're speeding, those lights start to turn red ahead of you to slow you down. Um, now, that's probably far more expensive than getting intelligent speed assistance or even an even better system into vehicles that ensures people won't speed. Um, but it's something that could work. And I think it has, you know, there are certain use cases where it makes a lot of sense right now, particularly the school zone use case that they were um, talking about in the article. Well, two Freds are better than one. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. Um, <laughs> that's, but you know, there, there is, could be a fault here. The, the assumption is that unsafe drivers are going to stop for a red light. And I, I don't think it's a given that will happen, but it should it should certainly you know uh, cause most drivers to notice what's going on and approach with more caution. So I think it's a fabulous idea. Fabulous idea. I love the name. <laughs> All right. I think that's three thumbs up for Fred Lights. Uh, so Michael, you just mentioned uh, it was the ISA, the Intelligent Speed Assist, and right. this is a pretty neat idea too. So. Uh, this is uh, this is a, a webinar from a couple weeks ago where it was saying that, hey, we can have fleet vehicles. So, you know, city fleet vehicles and municipalities fleet vehicles, we can have them automatically stay at or below the speed limits. They will never be speeding and we can start getting people this way. And we've talked about this with automated vehicles, that automated vehicles won't you know they shouldn't disobey the law so the speed limits 50 miles per hour or in montana 150 miles per hour um they will not go 151 miles per hour which i i don't want a uh, an autonomous vehicle doing 151 miles per hour because that's just too slow for me um so how how exactly does this work is this is this more of the how is the infrastructure talking to these vehicles what's What's the in, this, uh, in the intelligent speed assistant case, there there is no um, well. There's a there there the the, the vehicles. It's kind of like how Tesla sees speed limit signs. The vehicles' cameras are capturing speed limit signs, and this could be done in a better way. I think I don't think cameras are the ultimate solution. I think that ultimately vehicles with GPS will know what the speed limit is in the area they are in, um, which is probably uh, probably going to be more accurate than signs that can be obstructed or, you know, you can't see them as well in, in certain weather conditions. Um, yeah, you'll and you'll then, actually see this on, I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, and then, um, you, it, <laughs> and then okay, it, uh, time. 
And then it uh, basically gives the driver a warning, an, an escalating warning, possibly. And then ultimately, it you know the systems that we would encourage can slow vehicles down. Basically, if you're going to ignore the fact that you're speeding and you refuse to slow down, we're going to do it for you. Um, we're not going to allow you to kill people with speed, um, which is something that Americans don't like. And that's exactly why they're putting it into government vehicles first, because you know, you can pass a law. It, it makes sense for governments and fleets even, I think, to use this technology because it lowers their liability. But also, you know, in this case, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're not, you know, government workers, frankly, don't really have a choice here. They're going to be forced to drive the speed limit by their employers. Um, the rest of us aren't going to be forced by anyone. I, mean, I think we've got a long, well, kind of a long, hard road to getting speed assistance into vehicles, mainly because so many people seem to think that speeding and going as fast as they want is a, some kind of basic human right, which is absurd. But, you know, if you look at some of the groups out there that are supporting motorist rights, they think that these speed limiting devices are the equivalent of Satan. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's a really polarizing topic, um, around quote freedoms, um, the freedom to speed or the freedom to kill, as I would call it. Um, and intelligent speed assistance is, you know, it's going to be mandatory in Europe in a few years. At some point, it's going to be mandatory in America. If we could all just accept it now and get it into cars, we could save thousands of lives between now and the time we apps, we, we finally do actually have it put into vehicles. So, um, I wish that was an issue that wasn't quite as, brought with with uh the political considerations it is it's you know we're seeing speed kill on our roads more and more every day the last three to four years and when you're putting you know faster vehicles on the road electric vehicles they're going to be faster they're going to have better acceleration and you're not putting anything out there to stop the inevitable consequences of that then we're going to see problems i'm sorry are you talking about gun ownership now or are you talking about cars no, because <laughs> my car is. Uh, I guess I digressed a little bit, but I, you know, I've seen bumper stickers that state that certain commercial vehicles are already using this, and it's GPS based for the most part. I, I assume because I don't think the technology is there to do it visually. Um, another thing that is important to note, <clears throat> excuse me, is that all of these intelligent speed assistance systems have a bypass option. If you stomp in the accelerator, yeah. you will be able to exceed the speed limit. It's just that it requires conscious action on the part of the driver uh, to go ahead and exceed the speed limit. I'm not sure how this would work with an automated driving system since it's hard for them to know exactly when to violate speed limits in order to uh, you know achieve some kind of safe state. But anyway, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll back onto the point. It is an option and it is something that can be overridden by the driver, uh, if and when necessary. Which when, when, when it comes up, you know, when that rule comes up, we will be firmly against the idea that it's optional. Um, it makes absolutely no sense 
to spend all this money putting speed assistance into vehicles that just warns people that they're going over the speed limit. The worst speeders out there already know this. They already know they're going too fast. Well, not too fast. They already know, you know, they know the speed they're going. They know what the speed limit is. They know they're violating the speed limit. Having the car say, oh, I'm going to slow you down. And then having the option to say, oh, no, you're not. just doesn't work. I mean, ultimately, that's not going to address the hardcore speeders that we see causing a lot of the carnage on our roads. And it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate that's the case. But even in Europe, that's the system that they're going with. Ultimately, you know, I would hope that we would have vehicles that are simply restricted by technology to the speed limit in the area and that, you know, you don't have this option anymore. You know, speeding isn't a human right. Get up earlier. Michael, you're obviously avoiding the all too common scenario of the rabid bear wrapped with a gun on jet powered roller skates that are chasing you. You're driving along a nice Sunday day doing 30 miles per hour and a 35. And then this bear is coming at you on jets on on jet powered roller skates. You got to speed up. okay? this happens. When roller skating bears start killing 10,000 people a year, we can talk about it. Well, they're getting up there. You know, I read about this. It was on, you know. Well, I, I I don't think it spares nearly as often as Wiley Coyote. He's more of a failure than anything else. I mean, let's not get into that. Um, uh, this sounds like something that, on a serious note, that the insurance companies would actually really incentivize people. Hey, you have this in your car. We're going to drop your rates some you know significant amount because I'd sign up for that because auto insurance in Manhattan is really expensive. So please, auto, my insurance company, please th- go ahead, offer me this. I will do it. Some insurance companies do that already. You can put a dongle in your car and uh, use that to monitor your behavior, and they this will the, drop your rates by 59 cents, I think. This is a family show. Let's not talk about putting a dongle in my car. Um, speaking of, of of dongles in cars, uh, I think it's time for the uh, the Tau of Fred. Um, we've had the Fred Light. Now we have the towel, Fred. We have so many things that are Fred related. This is again the Autonomous Vehicle Consumer Bill of Rights number twelve. Oh my word! How many do we have? Are they going to go on forever? Is this I the penultimate one? one? More. This is. I think we're. I think we're getting down to penultimacy. Yeah. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Moving ahead here, the uh, number twelve is the AV shall collect and report operational data to support research and development to improve safety, performance, and reliability. And thanks to Michael for the initiative of putting this in. Uh, As a quid pro quo for operating on public roads to evaluate their AVs, uh, there should be a corresponding requirement that such AVs are releasing their data to the public so that people can evaluate how safely these are operating, and more importantly, circumstances in which they're not operating safely. Um, this gets back to, uh, you know, a lot of the other issues that we're talking about, about release of data and the accessibility of the performance data. But this stands alone because, you know, the AVs simply must expedite and make it easier for a responsible third-party request to recover and interpret the data that supports investigations of failures, fires, crashes, or cybersecurity violations, all of which can induce safety critical and life critical situations in a uh, an autonomously driven vehicle. 
And when I say AV, I'm, I'm of course being extensive and looking at SAE level two cars, SAE level three cars, level four. Anytime you're in a situation where the driver or the driver's representative is allowed to take their hands off the wheel and have the driver or have the vehicle drive itself for any extended length of time, uh, meaning multiple seconds, is in fact uh, subject to this uh, this requirement that all the data that's associated with the crash needs to be accessible to anybody who is authorized to look at that data. Um, open standards should be used so that there's no proprietary barriers on interpreting the data that's available in the car. And the, the reportable data must include unfettered access to relevant geographical, vehicular motion dynamics, parameters, software, firmware configuration, video, and other vehicle or event-specific data relevant to an investigation. In particular, as we've mentioned a couple times, you need assessment of uninspectable safety and life-critical features that are included in the reportable data. The implication of that is that the manufacturers must design in and build in built-in test information or capability and build-in diagnostic capability so that they are able to understand when the vehicle is operating outside of its designed operating envelope and also to inform anybody who's in the vehicle when it has exceeded the safety limits that have been designed into it. So there's a lot that needs to happen in order to support this particular uh, requirement. <clears throat> uh, reminding the listeners that if you want to review these in detail, you can go to autosafety.org forward slash AV hyphen bill hyphen. Uh, I'll come up with of, a URL because that's, but, that's too much. Right. All right. Yeah. We're going to have to okay. clean that up a little oh, bit, but oh, it's a, uh, AV, AV hyphen bill hyphen oh, of hyphen rights. And that's <laughs> need, it. No, we, it's so we, easy. It rolls right off of your tongue. Come on. I love that. We need open standards for our URLs. Come on. I think it's, <laughs> isn't it in the main navigation? It is. You go to autosafety.org and it's the third link up it, top AV bill of rights. Anthony's getting a little defensive about his website no, design, no, but no. that's okay. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> No, so, I appreciate that you said forward slash instead of backslash. That drives me nuts. People like backslash. There's no backslashes in there. Yeah. But getting back to the fundamental issue, <laughs> we, the public, paid for the damn highways. We, the public, have paid for the uh, infrastructure around the highways. It should not be a free asset for use by the AV manufacturers to turn us all into crash test dummies and uh, just go ahead and you know, use the highways for free without giving anything back to the public. End of rant. Agreed. So we see this problem taking place in the non-AV world a lot involving um, a lot, some of the Tesla crashes that have been investigated by NTSB and NHTSA where Tesla is uncooperative and providing all of the data that they're collecting. Um, I know that in some cases they've only provided EDR data, which is very limited when they literally are holding thousands of other elements of data down to the millisecond on a lot of the, on, on virtually every crash that takes place in the Tesla in America. 
Um, so they've been really non-cooperative in a lot of federal investigations around the autopilot and full self-driving issue. And, you know, when it, you know, moving to vehicles that can actually drive themselves in the AV context, we just want to make sure that the feds and state and local crash investigators are able to figure out what's happening here. And they're not going to be able to do that with, you know, the stuff that's on an EDR, which is an ancient dinosaur of a data recorder that you you have in your vehicle, unless you own a Porsche. Um, so that's why we think that open standards are necessary here so that, you know, manufacturers can't hide crash data on behind the cloak of proprietary um secrets they, they you know it, it's not it's to, these are things that are taking place on public roads they're impacting americans give us the data so we can figure out what's going on i like to refresh it. people's memory edr is event data recorder and it only has a very limited set of data for a few parameters from five seconds before the crash or or right until about 10 seconds after the crash something like that it's limited uh so speaking of bad uh, companies and companies doing bad things. Let's go into recall roundup. We got a couple minutes left. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. And we're going to start off with a company doing a good thing. Uh, Mercedes uh, has a recall uh, around their battery management system. And this is for their EQS series of vehicles, which, you know, if you can afford one of those, you should be donating to the, uh, the Center for Auto Safety because those are beautiful cars and they're really expensive. Anyway, uh, Mercedes uh, is being overly careful again for believing that Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards 305 Record requires better battered matter bad just take it away, Michael. I, I you know it, 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 305, that's a, it's Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 305. And we've looked at it a good bit and 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 because you know we talk about battery fires a lot, and that's a standard that NHTSA put into place. I know we talked about this once before because I remember saying, Anthony, here's an area where NHTSA's actually put a regulation out and it's here and it's applying to you know, they put it out about almost 20 years ago, and it's preventing battery electrolyte spillage and preventing um, some first responder issues that happen when these vehicles are in crashes. Um, so here, Mercedes said, you know, we're going to recall these vehicles because the battery management system may not be working properly. Well, 305, I don't believe even requires a battery management system. I mean, it's, there was certainly a, a big question here as to whether Mercedes uh, needed to pursue this as a recall, but they did. And we applaud them for that. Um, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's good to see that you get treated well as an owner when you spend that much on a car. Yeah. Well, um, if you spend a little less money and you bought a Ford, uh, Ford's 2004 to 2006 Ford Rangers, um, they looks like they might have installed some Takata airbags backwards. And now for those of you who haven't listened to the show before, if you have a Takata airbag, get it replaced immediately. Do it. Uh, they're bombs. So, but Ford, uh, put some of them in backwards, upside down. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure why they're just recalling these entirely and getting rid of them. I'm sure. Well, it's there. This is um, 
this these were some of the earlier Takata bags that were very dangerous. I mean, you're probably better off having a airbag installed backwards in your vehicle uh in this recall than you are leaving one of the old Takata bags in your vehicle because these are really old. I think these are 2004 to 2006 Rangers, so they're right there near the top most dangerous priority groups in the recall. Um but you know that I'm trying to remember exactly what um i mean basically here they just installed the airbags i don't know if it was backwards improperly and they're going back to do a check to make sure that all out of this big group of airbags that they installed that they they did them right so um i'm, I'm sure just replacing them and be like hey we put in your airbag backwards um but it's also a ticking time bomb here's the replacement well the, these were already replacements this may even be the second round of replacements I, I i didn't see but some of these vehicles they had a initial recall where they basically put the same airbag in that has the same problems but because it was you know 10 years newer it wasn't subject to the you know the humidity conditions and the time factor that caused the um airbag explosions the inflator ruptures so it, you were getting a new bad airbag that wasn't that ultimately might have the same problem and then they were coming in later with an even better airbag and replacing those so i'm not sure at what point in the process this happened but um any of the airbags even wrong wrongly installed were probably better than the first airbags that these cars had all right and for our final one for all of our listeners who own bentley's and paid attention to last week's episode where we discussed securing items in cars because in the event of a crash, everything is projectile. Uh, Bentley's rear entertainment screen brackets may fail. Uh, Bentley is recalling certain 2021 to 2023 flying spur vehicles. I don't know how many vehicles that would be, probably like eight. Uh, the rear entertainment screen retention bracket located in the rear of the front seats may have been incorrectly installed. So in a crash, this rear entertainment screen may go flying around via projectile. Uh, if you have this, put it in your trunk. No, that's not where we. Well, I mean, you can't watch video in your trunk. You need Aww. to go get it. You need to go get it fixed so that it doesn't fly around your car. Well, I'm putting it in the trunk because obviously, if I'm driving a Bentley, I've kidnapped somebody who owned a Bentley, and I've so they can the watch trunk. it. Well, you know, I mean, give them something to do. I don't want to be a total jerk to them. Yeah, I still I oh, yeah, I you don't want to be rude after you've oh, stolen their car. Rude. I mean, their trunk is going to be nicer than my car's front seats. Let's be real. It's a Bentley. Come on. Probably like baby yak skin in there. You know, an even better one on this issue came out this morning, too. Uh, Jaguar recalled about 12,000 of its vehicles. Let's see. Land <laughs> Rover. The owners were in the trunk. <laughs> Land Rover and Range Rover vehicles because a second row seat armrest storage compartment latch fails, which allows the object in the armrest storage compartment to be unsecured in the event of a crash, which, you know, that's that's a pretty solid recall. There. How big are these armrest storage compartments and what can you fit in there that would injure you in a crash? That's a that's an interesting one as well. Well, that's where I put all my knives. I put oh, them all well, that there. makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's how you got to do it. Hey, listeners, uh, this is just, you know, one of many reasons that you should subscribe and donate and tell all your friends. We'll talk to you about recalls in an absurd and fantastical ways. 
Uh, not even really that absurd. If you have a Takata airbag, that's a pretty serious thing. Get that fixed. Where can they go to find out if they have a Takata airbag still? Is it recalls.gov? No, there's a separate airbag site, isn't there? There's, uh, I think it's safeairbags.com. Um, yeah, and that's where you can go search your VIN, see if you qualify, and then get in touch directly with your manufacturer immediately. They sometimes can even come out to your house and, and repair it right there. Yes. So everyone do that. Absolutely do that for everybody else. Um, you know, I, I feel bad about your Bentley. Uh, I will let you out of the trunk because I'm going to go to the grocery store and pick up some things. And they've I, got they've got a Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard for that, Anthony. We talked oh, to Jeanette I, about that. Yeah, remember? I, no, sh- they can hop out of your trunk anytime they want. I don't know if they're listening. Okay, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah. So if you're in the trunk, uh, yeah, pull the release handle. Uh, thanks for listening again. Please go to autosafety.org. Become a monthly donor. We'll have a new Fred story. Oh, we'll have the story about how Fred's experience at Woodstock. How's that one? Okay. Five new monthly donors. Fred will reveal to you his latest felony. It's well past, well past any sort of, you know, uh, statute of limitations. And this does not involve drugs. Uh, we'll share that story. We need five new monthly donors. You can do it. I know you can. Five bucks a month. That's it. 60 bucks a year. Easy peasy. You spend more on that on trunk release handles. Uh, I, I think it's only a misdemeanor, but that, uh, who's who's going to quibble? Well, you know, good thing there's a lawyer on the show. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, thanks for subscribing. Have a good day. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.